a little informal poll I'd like to start with this morning. Just a show of hands, if you would. How many of you recently, let's just say, pick a time period, last couple weeks, have uh, experienced your first hurricane? Right, let's get them high here. I want to see here. Okay. A little less than I would have expected. Uh, maybe this might be a little bit more. How many of us have experienced our first earthquake? Okay. Only about half, actually. Now, I could not have foreseen that this week, this Sunday, which was actually pushed back by a week because of the hurricane, which also happened to many of us, I could not have foreseen that one of the main characters in today's Spirit Flicks movie, the last Spirit Flicks movie of the summer, would be very fittingly a geologist. A geologist whose job it is to understand the ground, how it moves, how it yields, how it's solid, how it's supple. When asked in the movie what the geologist actually does, he talks about it in sort of engineering terms because that's really what he does. But he has this phrase that I think is about so much more than just his engineering. He says, I investigate the ground beneath our feet to test the feasibility. That applies so much to the nature of the spiritual life as well, too. To test the ground underneath our feet for the feasibility, the meaning, the structure, and the depth of our lives. This movie, Another Year, unfolds in four Seasons, Four seasons in the year of a life. Now, it concerns primarily a couple. A couple older, middle-aged, happy. Tom and Geraldine, or as they're called by all their friends, Tom and Jerry. And yes, they sort of laugh about that a little bit. And if you came of age as I did in the 1970s, Tom and Jerry was not the Tom and Jerry it was back in the 50s. They had somehow decided in the 70s that, you know, violent cartoons and a cat and a mouse trying to kill each other all the time were not real good role models. And so in the 70s, they gave us Tom and Jerry working together, having adventures and escapades and being chums. I got to tell you, I think the older Tom and Jerry is much more fun than the lame version I was given in the 70s. But this Tom and Jerry in the movie are not at all like the 50s or 60s version of Tom and Jerry. They are happy. They are peaceable. They could not be more different from a couple that is bound together and yet cannot seem to stand each other. In their orbit of their lives are several other characters. Their son, who for the first half of the movie, the first two seasons, is single, and then the last two seasons finds a girlfriend that seems to be a relationship that will have duration and depth and meaning. And then two friends of theirs, two single friends of theirs, about the same age, late 50s, early 60s, Ken and Mary. And I have to say, Mary, especially of all these Spirit Flicks movies that I've preached about this summer, it is Mary's performance by that actress whose name I can't even recall right now that will stick with me the most. She reminds me of a different kind of cartoon character, a kind of visual trope that you'll see in a lot of cartoons. I'm sure you've seen this before, where the character is in a rush, and all of a sudden, their legs start spinning underneath them, going, 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 going very fast, but they make absolutely no movement forward or no progress. That is how... Mary's life is. She is racing nowhere, lamenting the life that she has lived in the past, the losses of love and opportunities 
and fearful for the future that will be hers. And thinking about this theme of the ground and the primary role that a geologist plays, I think so many of the characters in this movie are in fact playing a version of a kid's game that many of us know it is this. Can you see that? What is that? Shoots and ladders. You just played it this morning? You're not too cool to admit you play shoots and ladders still. That's all right. Now, like all kids' games, like all true kids' games, shoots and ladders is training for life. Sometimes we step on a square and we step on the ground and we find that the trap door has opened and the bottom has fallen out of our lives. And sometimes we step on a square and we find that it is the first step upward, perhaps the step to the stairway of heaven. And sometimes we just step on ground and it's just regular ground. The point of Tom and Jerry's life in the movie is that wherever we are there, they are. The point is to make conscious contact with the ground, whatever it is, whether it's a piece of ground that rockets you down or up or just has you standing still. I love this movie for very different reasons that I love some of the other movies I've preached on this summer. This movie rewards deep attention and awareness because actually very little in terms of movie action absolutely happens. And I think there's a clue to that about two thirds of the way through the movie. The characters are in a moment where they're wrestling with some grief that one of their family members has experienced and in the corner, almost not at all called attention to, you really have to look for it. There is this tiny little Buddha sitting there observing. To get the real meaning of this movie, which, by the way, I think is the same principle that applies to our lives, we have to learn to be like that Buddha sitting there and observing even when seemingly nothing exciting is going on at all. What's not said in this movie, which is also true of our lives, what's not said is sometimes much more important than what is said because the meaning is there if we look deeply and closely enough in this movie there is a complete and refreshing lack of any big reveal you know what happens in the third out of the four acts something we come to realize about a character that no one could have seen coming a final twist there's nothing like that here and yet this meaning in this movie is so deep and so rich if we pay attention. This is symbolized over and over through the four seasons of this movie. Through the image of the garden, Tom and Jerry are devoted gardeners. They visit their garden in spring as they start to prepare it. They visit their garden in summer as things are green and growing. They visit their garden in the fall. As the harvest starts to give up its bounty and then also come to a close. And yes, they even visit the garden in winter when seemingly nothing is going on. But still there is care to be attended to and offered. Whatever season it is, Tom and Jerry go to the garden. Not just in the seasons where it's exciting to do so. It reminds me of one of the great words of one of the great Unitarian ministers of the past century who was associated with Washington, D.C., A. Powell Davies. He said, life is this. Life is very simply just this. It's a chance to grow a soul. Life is a chance to grow 
a soul. But the soul is the same thing as the garden. There is no miracle grow for that. There is no garden or soul on steroids. There is no having it absolutely immediately. The miracle is not in getting what we want instantaneously. The miracle is in this, paying attention to the cycle itself and knowing that wherever we step, we can maintain that conscious contact with the ground. That's is the miracle. Now Mary, their friend, their character who exists in a constant contact and a conscious contact with a different kind, it is with anxiety and alcohol. I felt deeply about Mary because about 15, maybe 20 years ago, I knew what it was like to be that kind of person. Anxious and afraid and drinking and then the drinking brings on more anxiety. And the anxiety brings on more of the desire to snuff out what challenges us. She lives with a kind of someday syndrome and elsewhere envy. Someday she hopes on the horizon her life will be what it wants and she will grab that opportunity and she will seize it and it will be everything she wants. The thing is she couldn't recognize it. Her elsewhere envy is the sense that her life is just too rotten. And if she could only exchange everything about herself, well, then she would be happy. But the point is, she wouldn't even know who she is anymore. The problem with Mary, the something about Mary in this movie, is that she cannot regulate her feelings and her thoughts. She cannot mediate with her heart what is going on down here in her gut and her mind, which races endlessly. I think she suffers with something that all of us feel from time to time, which is just that plain old feeling of being overwhelmed. I think if none of us, and I include myself in this, none of us or none of you ever experiencing that feeling of being overwhelmed, we're probably not growing. We're probably staying all within a safe little confined circle and not experiencing the edge of our knowledge of ourselves. The point that happens when we land on that ground in which we are overwhelmed and maintain conscious contact with that, everything that happens in that moment is what counts. It's not the feeling itself of being overwhelmed. I want to show you a couple slides here that for me are a great teaching mechanism for understanding what it is to deal with being overwhelmed and to know what it is to regulate our feelings and our thoughts when we feel as if they are just an ocean, a cascade that is ready to wash us away. You know these characters? This side you have an ugly doll. That's not me calling it an ugly doll. That's the brand, <laughs> ugly doll. That over there is an approximation of Wilson. Wilson from Castaway, Tom Hanks' friend when he was lost on that island by himself, became Wilson this volleyball with hair sticking out of it. His companion, his friend, his only comrade he had during all that time alone. Well, my now six-year-old niece, Margot, has had an ugly doll since she's been about one year old. And my sister... And my brother-in-law, Emily and David, decided that something like this ugly doll kind of looked like Wilson. And so now her ugly doll is Wilson. Where's Wilson? It is her constant comrade, her constant companion. Well, for those of you who have raised children that have reached that age of two or three, 
you will know that there are some, perhaps, shall we say, kindly battles inherent in that time of life, and perhaps some of those continue on past the age of two or three. And Margot, that's my niece, who is a bright, avid, intense little girl. She was in the throes of one of those intensities where everything was a battle. Nighttime, bedtime especially. It took hours each night a few years back. Nothing was going well. They tried bargaining with her. They tried being severe with her. No corporal punishment, but they tried being very stern with her. They tried giving in. They tried not giving in. Nothing was working. And so finally... Having to give up, they decided only this. Every time Margot would come out of her room, whining, crying, squalling, not getting exactly what she needed, and she needed everything under the sun, they decided they would simply silently pick her up and put her back in her bed. One night, this has happened ten times, and they kept doing the same thing over and over and over, and they kept getting the same reaction, and I am not going to try and sound like a two-and-a-half-year-old who is squalling and doesn't want to go to bed. But those of you who live through this with your own kids, you know what that sounds like in your own mind. Same pattern over and over and over again. And then they heard that Margot was starting to calm down a little bit. Listening at the door, my sister Emily heard these words. All right, Wilson. Nobody's coming. I guess we'll have to go to bed. And a few hours later, they found Margot sprawled out in the middle of the floor, tears still sort of drying on her cheeks, but dead asleep. That's what Margot learned how to do as a young person, was to regulate her feelings, that she had strengths within her that she could count on. Now, she also had a really good trusted companion named Wilson to help see her through. All right, Wilson, nobody's coming. It's you and me here. I guess it's time for us to go to bed. This is where, I don't care if you're two and a half or 45 or 80, this is how we express our maturity when we learn to regulate those emotions that seem so overwhelming to us. This movie is about aging, about maturity, about learning to regulate difficult occurrences in life, learning to regulate difficult emotions. This movie is so different, and one of the reasons I love it so much is that because it features people in that second half of life. Not a lot of movies are made about folks in the second half of life. People who have a lot more time in back of them than they certainly have time in front of them. People who are nearing retirement and will soon be what we call elderly. And there have been a whole bunch of American movies. This is a British movie, by the way. There have been a whole bunch of American movies made about people aging in a certain way. And it shows them, you know, you get the death sentence and then you go straight to the bucket list. You jump out of airplanes, you know, learn to ride motorcycles. And in the most egregious, absurd example of this, there's a movie called Space Cowboys a few years ago, which had Clint Eastwood and James Garner and I think Robert Duvall somehow rocketed out into the orbit of the shuttle, needing somehow to save the Earth. Now, I'm all for adventure at any age. But that's not how most people deal with the second half of life. 
in this movie, there are no huge grand themes which are just presented to us. I mean, there's death, there is birth, there's pregnancy. There's so many of the passages in life, but they're quiet. There's no promise of being able to radically change our lives. That's something we Americans tend to be really obsessed with. Because the message of this movie is, in fact, much deeper. If we pay attention to our lives, life itself will change us enough already. There are those who lament those changes, like their friend Ken, who is scared at work even though he is still fully employed, nostalgic for the days in which he was in control and resenting the younger people that he worked with. There is Mary lamenting desperately, foolishly, pathetically even, trying to act so young instead of simply being the age that she is, doing these foolish, sad things that only call attention to her in the worst ways. Tom and Jerry know that they're growing up and they're aging as well too and that there is less time ahead of them than there is time behind them except they joke about it. They joke one day while they were wheeling a bunch of dirt into the garden and Tom gives a kind of oof. His back is giving out and he sits down and he kind of just work for a younger man than me, I guess. They say at one point where they're talking about a history novel that one of them is reading and the other responds while they're laying in bed one night, you know, we'll be part of history soon, too. They are in conscious contact with where their lives are. They accept the changes of what it is to age and work with them, maintaining that conscious contact with that shifting ground because it is always changing underneath them, but not lamenting it, not refusing it, not becoming resigned to it either, simply accepting it and working with what is there. I heard a beautiful example of the opportunities that maturity, that age can give us to grow wholeness in our souls, even if we hadn't experienced anything like that through most of our lives. On HBO right now, there's a really good documentary of the life of Gloria Steinem, who I think probably all of us know, the feminist icon. And she's talking about her life and times, which are the lives and times of so many different people. In the documentary, Gloria Steinem talks about what it was like to grow up with a father who was largely absent and a mother who was schizophrenic and mentally ill. She talked about that as a young woman in her 20s, she really had no wherewithal to be with her mom when her mom was dying. And that's something that always hurt her, something she always felt some remorse about. It also tells the story in the documentary that Gloria Steinem did something in her 60s that she never thought she would do. She got married. <laughs> Marriage was something she never had time for, didn't even see the need for, thought it might be, in fact, harmful herself or other women. And then she got married to a man who she was absolutely wonderfully in love with, and they were going to spend their golden years together. Except... They stepped on one of those squares, some of that shifting ground, and the man she married, they found out, had cancer and was dead less than three years after their joyous wedding day. Gloria Steinem talked about how wonderfully healing it was for her 
as a woman in her late 60s and going into her 70s, to be able to care for a dying person when she couldn't do that when she was a young person, that she experienced a kind of wholeness and peace in this opportunity that she could only have because she accepted the conditions of her life. At Wellsprings, one of our core beliefs here is what we call gardens of abundance and joy. Now, there's a certain way of taking that that might seem sort of like Ren and Stimpy, happy, happy, joy, joy. And if you remember Ren and Stimpy, maybe you don't. Clearly, I have watched a lot of cartoons in my life. <laughs> gardens of abundance and joy is not just about the season like now where everything is green and growing or about to harvest that great yield. We talk about the gardener striving to create the right conditions in the, in the garden just as we ourselves strive to create the right conditions for our spiritual growth. And one of the first things that we need to know to become good gardeners is to know that it is not always a growing and green and harvesting season. That there is a different kind of abundance in each season of life. That even in winter, even in the season in which the ground is covered over by cold, by winter, and nothing seems to be growing, that there is an abundance right there. It is the abundance of inactivity. The abundance of doing nothing. The abundance that all of us need of rest. This is a really busy season for most of us with out of vacation and back to school and back to work and so many things going on. It is so important to recognize that if we cannot live in the abundance of winter, which is to say the abundance of Sabbath, of rest, of peace, we will not be able to live in the abundance of the fullness of things and the fullness of activity if we cannot stop. There is an abundance even in discarded things, even in things we would call trash. I love the scene in this movie when their son wheels up a barrel of compost <laughs> into the garden and dumps it out. And he says, here, a gift for you. And these gardeners, knowing the glory of compost, their eyes light up. Because compost, which is trash, which is the discards, which is the stuff left over if we don't pay attention to it, that is gardening gold because out of decay can come new life if we listen and pay attention even our trash is valuable Tom and Jerry in this movie collect what I call the Eleanor Rigby people all the lonely people where do they all come from all the lonely people where do they all belong that's a question Paul McCartney posed, and I think this movie gives an answer. Maybe all the lonely people became the lonely people because they were discarded. Because someone or someone's decided about them that they had lost their value, they had lost their utility, they had lost their enjoyment, their fun, and so it was time to set them aside. This movie is about the deep, real, spiritual value of friendship. Tom and Jerry don't cast off their friends, and it's encouraging for us to look at this as well, too. When those friends have had bad luck or made poor choices or are just kind of sad, they encourage them, try to help them to make good choices. Sometimes they challenge them, as Jerry does with Mary when Mary has been an absolute fool and has brought something into Tom and Jerry's household that is harmful. 
She says, you must be responsible for your choices, Mary, if you're going to continue to be here. But they don't just cast off their friends because they are lonely or because the world would deem them as losers. They've known their friends over time, over many years, and maybe they were once happier. But now that they're sad, Tom and Jerry don't just throw them away. It is not a mistake, I think, and this movie makes it clear that over and over again, the happiest people in our society, you know who they are? The elderly. Probably because they don't kind and control other people anymore. <laughs> I'm not saying some elderly people don't. I'm talking in the aggregate. If this were a young person's movie, there would be a scene, a big scene where Tom and Jerry did an intervention with Mary and everything had to change or they were going to cast her off. And I'm not saying Mary shouldn't go to rehab. But there's something more subtle at play here. There is a deeper acceptance that true friendship means. And that's something that Tom and Jerry can practice. And we know it ourselves with the kind of humility that recognizes to love someone is not to wish to change them. It is perhaps to aid and help in their transformation and in that change, but it is not to force it. The two key ingredients in happiness itself are humility and acceptance. In a beautiful scene in this movie, Tom's brother's wife died. His sister-in-law dies, and it's almost a parody of British emotional circumspection. Stiff upper lip. They go to see the brother in a kind of a decrepit, depressing part of North England. And he is so mute, it will almost feel as if he is not grieving. But his sadness is of such a kind that he just doesn't have any words for it. And Tom doesn't have any way to make the suffering and the sorrow go away. And these are British people, classically British people. They don't hug and kiss a lot. Tom goes up and simply wraps his arms around his 70-something brother, briefly and quietly. And you can see at first the brother stiff. He's, this is not what we do. We don't hug. And then slowly... His arm comes up and pats Tom, his brother, on the back, as if to say simply, thank you for being present. It's an old saying in the Taoist tradition that the Tao that can be spoken is not the true Tao. The Tao means simply the way, the path, the primal energy. It can't translate exactly because it's true what I just said. If I could speak it and define it, it wouldn't be the Tao. This movie has so much of that kind of energy in its lack of decisive Hollywood moments. It can't be spoken, but that flow, that energy can be experienced and witnessed. On the day of that earthquake, I put these words on my Facebook status that I know some of you saw. Earthquake today, hurricane on the way. Let the overreading and misapplication of ancient religious texts now commence. <laughs> People wanting to find great big reasons why stuff happens. Some people said, yes, it was 
coming to New York, this hurricane was on its way, was targeting New York City because of the marriage equality vote. Some politicians even said that, you know, D.C. isn't getting its crap together, so that's what the earthquake was for. Well, in these words that we sang not too long ago from the book of Ecclesiastes, a very different, very different spiritual kind of way of living life is proposed. After that famous passage about for everything there is a time and purpose under heaven, the writer goes on to say, God has implanted in us, all of us, a sense of past and present, but the absolute beginning of things and the absolute end of things, that's not for us to know. Our minds aren't that big. And so the wisdom instead in life, instead of as a Eugene Patterson, actually a born-again Christian, says, I love, he said this, the spiritual life is not about finding and collecting information about God. The spiritual life is about building skills in faith. I think learning to step where we step mindfully and carefully and compassionately. The wisdom of our lives, according to Ecclesiastes, according to the turning, comes in paying attention to the turning of our earth, comes in paying attention to the turning of the page, comes in paying attention to the turning of our lives day after day after day. This is why those overarching religious reasons trouble me. Most often, they're just flat out wrong. The world's going to come to an end on such and such day. It hasn't yet. But also they miss life. They miss the life that is here. They refuse to turn the book of life one page at a time. They remind me of those grief-stricken creatures like Harry. And when Harry met Sally, if you remember him, a deeply neurotic guy in his 20s saying that whenever he starts a new book, he immediately then goes to the last page to read it. That way, if he dies before he gets to the end, he knows exactly what has happened. This way of living is so obsessed with the end of life that we deny the presence of life as it is right here and right now. So even the last scene in this movie, and if you haven't seen it, I encourage you. It's a sad scene. It's a scene where some of the realizations of what Mary's life is are starting to hit her. Except I don't think it's a sad scene because it's winter and spring comes next. And maybe this is exactly what Mary needs to do to awaken to the joy and the abundance of her life. To enter back into the cycle of dying and living and living and dying and living and dying and dying and living. Perhaps she needs to recognize what the great theologian Paul Tillich called the ground of being. Paul Tillich was sick and tired in his time, living as he did in years Nazi Germany, where he saw people turn God, the leader, the Fuhrer, into an idol that only would tell them exactly what they wanted to know or wanted to hear and tell other people that they were imperiled or in danger. No. Tilk said, God is not some big king over us telling us what to do, but the simple, intimate ground of being, what is, is the divine. And that picture of the Buddha in the movie. If you've any, seen any pictures of the Buddha sitting in that moment preparing for his enlightenment, you see perhaps these two fingers 
touching the earth. It's called a mudra, a hand symbol. And without words, because the enlightenment that can be spoken is not the true enlightenment. What the Buddha is saying is here, I am connected. The earth is my witness and I am witness to this ground. Nothing can sever our connection if we maintain that conscious contact. Today, may you be in conscious contact with your life. Undo it with me. Take your hands, put them right down to the earth. Feel where you are. You can come back up if you want to. <laughs> Today, be in conscious contact. Whatever's there. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. O ground of being, fertile, fallow, abundant, restful, whatever is here. O great ground of being, may we connect with this, with here, with now, with love, with sadness. May we learn to befriend our lives. May we all truly recognize, know, and love this path. Here we are. And isn't it wonderful? Amen.